1: Welcome to Closing Bell, I'm Mike Santoli in for Scott Wapner. This make or break hour begins with a sigh of relief for stocks. Here's your scorecard with uh, 60 minutes left to go in the session see the S&P 500 up about a third of a percent the Dow flat that's really being dragged down by some of the more economically defensive areas all the indexes though well up off their session lows up by about three quarters of a percent intraday on the S&P but still all in jeopardy of posting modest weekly declines after a jobs report that came in a bit softer than what the street was expecting and Chicago Fed President Austin Goolsbee telling CNBC he is still undecided about what the Fed should do in July. Steve Leisman will be along shortly with more from that interview. And it all brings us to our talk of the tape and whether today's jobs report was just right, To keep the Fed from turning much more aggressive, even as it shows still strong labor market and what it all might mean for the rally. Let's ask Charles Schwab's Lizanne Saunders, chief investment strategist there. Lizanne, uh, great to to speak with you on all this. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, I I guess the question is, do you think the market is correct to take a little bit of comfort out of today's numbers? Uh, Essentially, we're not seeing an overheating economy, but also not one that's outright stalling.
2: Yeah, I, I suppose in the context of the nearly 500,000 ADP print, which really kind of freaked out investors, I think it could take some comfort. Um, but, of course, it it we're, we're starting to see the weakening that although the Fed wants to, to continue to quell inflation, might be starting to send some signs of, of sort of full official recession versus what we've been calling the uh, rolling recession. I think it was the slightly hotter than expect wage number and the uptick in uh, hours work that probably move the needle a little bit in terms of probabilities for a, a July hike, which were already high, but now they're up around 95 percent. Beyond that, meaning September, you know, it's the data that's going to uh, to define what the Fed does beyond July. But I think a hike is basically baked in.
1: Yeah, it does seem that way, uh, certainly at this point, although what what are you picking up in these numbers today that suggest to you that we may be now getting closer to that more broad-based formal recession. I mean, obviously there were downward revisions to prior months job gains and then about a 40,000 job miss uh, for June.
2: So you also saw um, uh, the spread between household and payroll or establishment survey data. The establishment survey is what generates payrolls and then the household survey is what generates the unemployment rate. And although that, uh, in the case of household, was up, that is compared to a pretty big negative the prior month and out of the last 15 months, five months have seen big declines in household employment. And that tends to lead as you're heading into a downturn in the economy. You've also seen the rolling over in temporary jobs. That also tends to be a leading indicator. And although we had a little bit of relief in terms of unemployment claims, the four week average is up uh, more than 30 percent from the trough and the average heading into recessions of claims is up only about 20 percent from the the trough. so it's certainly not a done deal but maybe a few more little check marks you can put in the uh, in the recession column
1: Yeah, it's interesting because, of course, I think there's been in the last couple of months uh, this consensus migrating to the idea that we're pushing out the the potential date of an onset of recession. It seems like things can appear and feel like a soft landing for a little bit longer. Meanwhile, though, yields have backed up to a point where, you know, the two-year yield almost back to where it was right before that SVB regional bank scare. And of course, the 10-year flirting again with with 4%. How does that filter into the, uh, I, I guess, the way the equity markets might be able to handle this? environment.
2: Well, and, and keep in mind, as you know, Mike, it, nominal yields are up, but so are real yields because yeah. you haven't seen a commensurate increase in, in recent inflation data. So you've got that pop up in real yields. And given that the rally off the October low was more than all accounted for by multiple expansion, there was no e, you know, earnings component to it. I think in conjunction with the uh, the move up in yields, I think it just put some downward pressure on some of the more highly valued segments of the, the market that were probably ripe for some Profit taking anyway because you had started to see not only overbought conditions, but that concentration problem. On a day like today, seeing a pretty significant rally by small caps uh, via the Russell 2000, um, we've had smatterings of those. And I think it's good to to maybe see convergence happen by both a little bit of profit taking up the cap spectrum into those names that were solely driving performance, but also greater participation by the so-called average stock. We need more of it, but uh, some in that today given that broadening
1: out yeah certainly the market has had you know coming into the second half plenty to prove on that score I know you feel that uh, investor sentiment has also gotten to a point where it's becoming more challenging maybe more of a headwind from here what are you looking at specifically that says that maybe raises the bar for further gains
2: well, if you look at behavioral measures like fund flows, and we focus a little bit more on ETFs because there's more activity there relative to traditional mutual funds. Um, you know, about 80% of the flows in the past month or so have been on the equity side of things. You you look at um, a variety of, of the so-called you know smart money, dumb money, confidence measures. If you look at some of the attitudinal measures like AAII, although a little bit off the the boil in general you're in what might be deemed excessive optimism, or at least ample complacency that, and this is important, all else equal is a contrarian indicator. You know, sentiment can get frothy and stay there for years, like was the case in the late 90s. So don't ever consider a frothy sentiment environment as some immediate, you know, sell signal for the the market. But all else equal, I think it represents uh, at least some near-term risk to the extent that there's a negative catalyst.
1: Right. And and certainly what it does is get us into a different place than we were entering the year when it seemed like there was a lot of pessimism that the market was able to feed off of uh, to go a bit higher. Uh, Let's bring in CNBC senior economics reporter Steve Leisman, as well as Cameron Dawson of New Age Wealth to talk more about all this. Steve, you spoke to Chicago
3: Fed President Austin Goolsbee earlier today. What was your takeaway? He was kind of sunny. You know, I think it's a great way to leave on a Friday in a summer afternoon. He is not that discontent uh, compared to, for example, some of his colleagues on the Fed with the trajectory of the economy. They seem all bothered by how resilient the economy has been. Obviously, he thinks inflation is too high, but he talked about making progress. And I think on this sunny, though humid uh, Friday afternoon, we ought to listen to the fairly upbeat
4: uh, Austin Goolsbee here the Fed's overriding goal right now is to get inflation down, we are going to succeed at it, and
5: to do that without a recession would be a triumph. And that's the golden path,
3: and I feel like we're on that golden path. So on the golden path, I don't know how much Lizanne or Cameron think we're on the golden path, but we are bringing inflation down. Employment is relatively uh, robust still. We have not yet had anything that would resemble an official recession, in part because we don't have the weakness in the jobs market. The consumer seems to not be giving it up, although perhaps there's some softening there. So I don't know. There's sort of a feeling among some that maybe they can pull this off against odds and their past history of being unable to do so, Mike. Sure.
1: Uh, He said golden path, not yellow brick road. Might have had different implications if that were uh, the case. Uh, Cameron, um, it is the case, and I think it's a good reminder what Goolsbee had to say, which is, It's inflation that is in the mandate, and it is the target of their policy right now. It's not we need to get unemployment to a certain level. We need the economy to slow to a certain point. Financial conditions have to be to a certain level of tightness. Those are all the tools. Those are not the jobs. So do you think that there is a shot the economy can have this more benign outcome?
6: Well, certainly, but I think it really does depend on the path of services inflation because schools called out. Goods inflation is needing to see more progress on that front. But that's been in disinflation for 18 months from durable goods. So we've already seen progress on that. It's the services inflation that remains so sticky and why the Fed keeps bringing up the labor market is something that they need to watch because we still see wages being very elevated. Yes, they're a little bit off their highs, but we saw in the average hourly earnings today that was the source of upside surprise. So how much does the tighter labor market and higher wages feed into that services inflation and keep them from truly achieving the entirety of their 2% goal.
3: Cameron I'll just give you real quickly the Goolsby response to that because I asked him that and he was talking about the work week as a whole which is kind of down from where it was and as you know the amount that people take home is the hours work times the wage and if one goes down a little bit and the other goes up you kind of end up sort of in the flattest area that's his response to the inflationary impulse from the wage numbers.
1: Although I do think, uh, Steve, that what Cameron said and and all that we've been talking about does get to this idea of we take some Part in the resilience of the economy. And Lizanne, I love your thought on this. But the resilience of the economy is also the thing that keeps certain factors sticky, whether it is wage growth uh, or it is some of these measures of inflation and therefore keeps the Fed in the game looking to do perhaps more versus less. So is this just elongating the process, Lizanne, or do you actually think that uh, that we can get to some kind of really favorable equilibrium at some point soon?
2: Um, Well, I do think it's elongating the process, and and, and nobody wants uh, a recession or any kind of contraction in economic growth, but, frankly, one that gets pushed further out, possibly into 2024, I don't think that that's a, a, a more bullish environment for the stock market. I think um, weakness sooner rather than later allows the Fed not to pivot to rate cuts, but to move into pause mode. So I actually think not that, not that we're cheering for, for weaker economic numbers, but that's the better scenario from a market perspective than a push out into 2024.
1: Yeah, Cameron, it seems as if this market has required and it's not that atypical, but it's very stark this year. It's required these scares along the way, people to get worried about something and have a little bit of a concentration of fear and selling intensive and then get a little bit of relief when it doesn't get so bad. So we've been riding that for a while. I wonder if you think uh, that brings us to a place where, uh, you know, we're we're not able to necessarily find the next thing uh, to climb as a wall of worry.
6: Yeah, the market has certainly shrugged off a lot. And one of the things that it has shrugged off is the impact on better data to the pricing of Fed rate cuts in 2023, because just a couple of months ago, there was a pretty aggressive pivot priced into the back half of the year, which has been now effectively completely priced out as data hasn't supported the Fed moving to an easy stance. But as that has been priced out, you've seen the upward pressure on yields. And yet equity markets have completely ignored ignored the the message from yields and really continue to see really sharp valuation expansion in the face of higher nominal and, as Lizanne pointed out earlier, real yields, and to see the real yield for the 10-year go to a new year-to-date high of nearly 1.8% today and have the NASDAQ and growth stocks lead the market higher just as a great example of how much those parts of the market have ignored the message from yields.
1: Are they ignoring the message or are they feeding off of something else out there besides just the math of, uh, of, you know, sort of the real cost of money, do you think?
6: I think it's a little bit of both. So the message from yields may be that the Fed itself and the market still has cuts priced into 2024. So what's a couple extra months of higher interest rates before you get the eventual pivot? But to your point on the second hand, is that there really are other things driving this market higher. It's the optimism around AI and what that could mean for earnings. We haven't seen that shown up in earnings estimates yet. The Russell 1000 growth earnings have only been revised up by about 3%. Over the past couple of months. And usually those do lag, but we'll really need to see those earnings estimates be revised higher to justify these kind of valuations, which really do price in a fair amount of good news from out years into today's levels. Mm-hmm.
1: Steve, um- With Goolsby saying he personally is undecided about what to do in July, it's two and a half weeks away. We're going to get the CPI numbers. Not sure what else. Does that give you any hint of the state of the internal debate, given that he's a voter, uh, he's going to be in the room, and he's not taking for granted that we're going to go 25? I mean,
3: he said you can do one or two more hikes this year. He just doesn't think, you know, they're going to do more than that. He maybe wants to uh, take a more of a wait and see approach, which is sort of in line with the chair. He's just a little less downbeat. But, but Mike, I want to leave you with one sort of other sunny thought here on this Friday afternoon. And it kind of responds a bit to Cameron, which is where's the profits going to come from? When I think about today's jobs report, you know, the half year is done. We brought on one and a half to two million new workers. It's an enormous number of workers to bring on. I think company and corporate productivity has suffered because of this massive hiring spree they've been on, and I think one of two things is going to happen. The first is that company, these workers are going to become more productive, and that's going to show up in productivity numbers for the economy, and it's going to make the wage gains look less problematic to the Fed. The other thing that would happen is if these workers don't become more productive, there could be some shedding of these workers, and so companies will find a route back to, or to enhance their profitability through some cost-cutting. One or the other thing needs to happen, but I think we're not giving enough credit for the amount of hiring that's happened and how that, at least initially, is a potential drag both on the economy and on corporate profitability.
1: Yeah. Fair point. Unclear just exactly how rapidly we can see that uh, type of effect on productivity that satisfies the time horizons of the average uh, investor. But uh, worth keeping in mind. And Lizanne, just to kind of bring it back to where you sit from uh, practical portfolio allocation stance right here, reacting to this current environment, seemingly late cycle, things not looking cheap, but not everything in the market has participated equally.
2: Yeah, no question about it. I mean, the concentration um, has been significant in the, the mega cap eight. And at least through the beginning of June, you had a record low percentage of the S&P that was outperforming the index itself over the past two to three months or so. So I think there is some opportunity down the cap spectrum in other areas. But we continue to say you want to stay up in quality. As you know, Mike, we've been very factor focused as opposed to trying to make monolithic sector calls with kind of a quality wrapper around factors, factors like strong free cash flow, especially relative to enterprise value, self-funding companies, i.e., you know, strong balance sheet, low debt, high cash. We're in earnings season, so positive earnings revisions, positive earnings surprise. So it's really a blend end of lowercase g and v growth and value uh, factors. But I would say broadly, it's got that quality wrap around it. There's going to be a time where you, it's okay to move down the quality uh, spectrum because that's where you get leverage to a cyclical upturn in the economy. I'm just not sure we're there yet.
1: Got you. And, um, and Cameron, um, in terms of the way you would approach things from right now, fresh money wise, uh, we obviously have this market that has left some things on the table. I mean, some things have fallen by the wayside. Uh, you have small caps, you have equal weight that have only haltingly participated. But what areas do you think uh, make sense for this current moment?
6: Yeah, I think that you have to have a distinct time frame in mind when making the decision, because if you're looking out two to three months, the best momentum, the best trends are in the most expensive parts of the market. And we really haven't seen any deterioration in those trends yet to suggest that the uptrend is over. But if we're looking from a valuation perspective, which is a better predictor of returns looking out two, three years, you do see much better valuations within equal weight and within value. Now, we prefer equal weight overvalue just because value has such a heavy overweight to financials and energy. But that equal weight index is actually trading below its 10-year average valuation. So a lot of that lift in valuations that we've seen year to date that would cause us to be careful about those expensive parts of the market over the longer term, we don't see that within equal weight. And that's where we're finding opportunity in today's market.
1: All right. Yeah, I think it's about a four and a half percent year to date on the equal weight. It's not exactly as impressive as the market cap weighted, but it's not nothing either. Um, Lizanne, Steve, Cameron, thanks so much. Have a great weekend. Thanks, Mike. All right. Let's get to our Twitter question of the day. What will the Fed do at their next meeting? Hike, cut or pause? Head to at CNBC closing bell on Twitter to vote. We'll share the results later in the hour. We have uh, about 43 minutes left in the trading day. Let's get a check on some top stocks to watch as we head into the close. Christina Parts Neville is here with that. Hey, Christina.
7: Hello, Mike. Let's talk about shares of Riot Platforms. They're surging to a new 52-week high today after releasing its production numbers from last month. The crypto mining platform saw an increase in Bitcoin production last month compared to a year ago. You can see shares are up about almost 13 percent right now. The stock has really has seen just this massive, look at this, this massive run-up this year. Shares are up, what, 350 percent just in 2023? There's that AI. Now let's switch gears, talk about the retail space. Levi Strauss is following after the company slashed its profit outlook for the rest of the year, driven by a steep drop in wholesale revenues. Contour Brands is another name I wanted to just bring up right here, down almost 8%. It's falling in sympathy because this name is also known for its denim brands, Wrangler and Lee. So You can see both Levi Strauss down 6.5, Contour almost 8. Mike, do you have Wranglers?
1: Thanks so much. Not in a long time. Okay. Uh, maybe when I was, you know, uh, mom was shopping in the children's section for me. Okay, but, good,
7: good. good. you <laughs> like actually, a Levi's I wasn't guy. aware that was
1: now the public company uh, that held them. Uh, excellent. You
7: learn something new every day with me. There All right,
1: you go. Bye. Appreciate it. We are just getting started. Still ahead, Amazon CEO telling CNBC yesterday he has no plans to spin out AWS. So what could be the next catalyst for that stock? We'll ask a top analyst. Plus, the chief U.S. strategist at Ned Davis Research tells us the two market forces that could drive the next leg of this rally. You're watching Closing Bell on CNBC.
8: What does it mean
0: to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash rich. Edward Jones, member SIPC.
8: This episode is brought to you by AARP. Ten years from today, Lisa Schneider will trade in her office job to become the leader of a pack of dogs. As the owner of her own dog rescue, that is
1: Amazon shares climbing today following our own John Fort's wide-ranging interview yesterday with CEO Andy Jassy on closing bell over time. Here's what he had to say about the future of AWS and Amazon's position in the AI race. What is the possibility, the likelihood, that you're going to spin
5: out AWS from Amazon?
4: We don't have any intention or plan to do so. We've invested over the last few years in our own customized training chips that we call Tranium and inference chips that we call Inferentia, which will have much better price performance than you'll find anywhere else. We're on the second versions of those chips, and we're quite optimistic that a lot of the machine learning training and inference will be done on AWS chips.
1: Let's bring in Needham's Laura Martin uh, to react. Laura, good to have you today. Um, Interesting, the the, the takeaway from my perspective from that interview was a lot of more of the same business as usual. We're going to keep doing what we've been doing, both in AI. We've been been in there and it's going to take hold pretty soon. But also in terms of the structure of the company, no spinning out of AWS and kind of blocking and tackling on the retail side and general cost cutting as opposed to some big push for higher margins. So what was your uh, main reaction and, and what do you think this means for the stock?
9: So, I mean, I think that is his preferred, like he wants it all to go away. But I think it is shameful that we just had a generative AI launch day last week, which is seven months after chat GPT. So talk about defensive in the division he came from. And if you look at these horrible margins at Amazon, my words, not theirs, 2% operating margins last year, and now for the empire overall, and now he's gonna wanna spend a ton of money trying to catch up with Microsoft and Google, the market won't tolerate it. They're not gonna let this company cut its margins. And he's laying off people, which is really bad in a consumer-facing business because it hurts morale of the rest of your employees and makes consumers not like the brand as much. So I don't think he's as sanguine in that that seat of his. Is, I think he's far too sanguine. He needs to get. He needs to keep these shares going up.
1: So what would be, uh, I guess, one, two, and three on your list of, of what he ought to prioritize then?
9: He should spin off 10% of AWS. He gives us the financials anybody. It would allow tax consolidation. It would let a totally different set of investors invest in AWS and give them capital to drive what is going to require billions actually of dollars. We know from Microsoft, they're putting $10 billion into ChatGPT. They only own 49%. So this is gonna be billions of dollars that he's gonna require in his cloud business. And the e-commerce business doesn't make any money. It's sort of their anchor tenancy, but they don't make any money. So he needs to spin off part of this so it can get a higher multiple so he can fund what he needs to do in generative AI over at cloud.
1: Do you think that we'd have any surprises as to how the rest of Amazon would trade if AWS were capitalized separately. In other words, you know, is it just a, such a huge predominant uh, weighting in terms of the overall company valuation that, that the market is, is going to pay even less for the rest of it?
9: So I think conglomerates always get a pretty big discount on, 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 you know, from Wall Street. So because when we add up the actual value of what we think cloud would trade out separately, and we think the media like Prime and Twitch, all these assets get buried in the conglomerate and the margins get pulled down by e-commerce. It is my point of view that the more you separate those financial statements from e-commerce, the more they would have to increase their e-commerce profits, which would be better for the business and for capital allocation in my point of view.
1: Do you think they have a clear path into to getting the margins higher in e-commerce? I mean, you mentioned it's not a great look to be laying people off, but presumably that would be part of it.
9: Yeah, no, I don't. I don't think there's a sense of urgency, and I think there should be, because I think he's going to need a lot of money to compete in cloud. And cloud has massive 30% margins, whereas everyone else in cloud is losing money or has tiny margins. So he wouldn't even have had a 2% operating margin last year if it wasn't for his wonderful, huge cloud business at 30%. By the way, the thing about generative AI is once one of your clients creates an app on one of these foundation models, the lock-in into your cloud business is enormous. So it is really important he race for the finish line here, or he's going to lose his business clients to Google or to Microsoft to our head, and he will not get them back. Because mm-hmm. you build these apps on a foundation model, that's sitting at one of these big cloud providers.
1: He w- he did address that a bit. Now, is, he, is it your sense that that the company is truly behind or that they've just been bad about messaging where they're headed in this area and haven't made as big a deal out of it as microsoft and alphabet have
9: i disagree with his statement although i think it's the only position he could take um i think they're really far behind and i think the evidence i would use is not only this very late launch seven months after ChatGPT came to the consumer but also the fact that what they're doing is they're saying hey All you foundation models, you don't want to be at Google. That's a conflict of interest. Come to us at AWS. We will host your foundation model. And so our business clients can pick among any foundation model, Mm -hmm. including ours, bedrock. But that means to me that they're behind because they're going to become the aggregator for other people's foundation models.
1: And now all that said, uh, I mean, I know you're still carrying a buy on the stock They or 150 price target. Is that just because of the underlying AWS value?
9: It is. And because we really think Twitch is undervalued here. We think Mm. Amazon Prime is undervalued here. The media assets here are really worth the sum of the parts here. We think sort of you get e-commerce for free, but we think e-commerce must start increase its earnings.
1: Interesting. Laura, uh, thanks a lot for the time. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Laura Martin. Coming up, our next guest says the bull run isn't over yet. He'll tell you why and how to position your portfolio after this quick break.
8: That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at AARP.org skills.
1: Welcome back to Closing Bell. The S&P 500 staging a modest midday turnaround to the upside. Still on track, though, for its second negative week in three. Yet the bull run isn't over yet, according to our next guest, Ed Klissel, chief U.S. strategist at Ned Davis Research, sees two major market forces that should drive the next leg of the rally. Ed, uh, good to see you. I know you you know, probably been contending like everybody who's watching this market with some mixed messages, right? It was a, a pretty good rally off the October low, but it didn't necessarily check off all the boxes to say this is a, a true high-momentum bull market. Uh, but what are you seeing in your signals that embolden you to maybe nudge equity exposure up recently.
5: Uh, Yeah, yeah, thanks, Michael. Uh, We we have been overweight equities since January and we added a little bit more exposure earlier this week. And there are two reasons for that. One is that a fair criticism of the rally coming off of the Silicon Valley Bank debacle was it was very narrow. Just a handful of stocks were driving all the gains. But that's changed. It's broadened out considerably. If you look at percentage of stocks above their 50-day moving averages, that's gotten well above 75% like a percentage of sub-industries. So there's about 150 sub-industries. Almost 80% of them are in uptrend. So that's a pretty broad rally. And the second thing is that there's been this concern over a looming recession because growth has been weak. The Fed's been so aggressive. But the recent economic data, if you look at the jobs data today, the ISM services uh, report uh, the other day and some other economic data, it's suggesting an imminent recession um, risk is is pretty low. So maybe that could happen next year, but that enables the rally to continue for a little bit longer, even if the Fed does raise rates in a few weeks.
1: What are some of your other inputs suggesting at this point, things like, you know, valuation overall or or even some of the the, the sentiment metrics that you that you carry? Uh, Are they also feeding into this idea that there could be more room?
5: Um, yeah, yeah, those are a little bit mixed. But if you look at absolute valuations, just the P/E for the S and P 500, it's not that far above its long-term average. The challenge there is relative to short-term interest rates. It's probably the first time in about 20 years that cash has been a very reasonable alternative uh, to to stocks. So that may cap the upside um, in in stocks somewhat. When you look at investor sentiment, Michael, um, that has been had been a really positive. Part of our indicator suite. People were so concerned about a recession, about the Fed for so long that any incremental piece of good news was probably going to nudge the market higher. Now, some of those bears have come off the sidelines. There's a little bit more optimism. Usually when you've been pessimistic for this long time, months and months on end, it, the first movement to optimism isn't necessarily a bull killer. It's if it stays there for a long time, that that would be more of an issue, which, again, is a reason why we think the rally could go, for, go on for several weeks to a few months more uh, before it runs into trouble.
1: All right. And is there a, a particular level of yields that would become more of a concern? Uh, or I guess if yields fell, would that refresh the bull
3: case?
5: Yeah. So I, I think from here, you know, an, an another 25, 50 basis points in, in Fed rate hikes to push the the, the three month towards 6%. You know, at some point in there, it would probably m- mean, you know, the equities are even less attractive. I think it has to do with the speed of long-term interest rates. If you get a 7,500 basis point move in just a few months, you know, the market tends to really take notice. But if it's a slow climb higher, the market can usually digest that um, okay. So that's something that we're, we're keeping an eye on, the level, but also the speed of of, uh, of the move in interest rates.
1: Sure. Yeah. It seems like the market has been uh, you know drawing a little bit of strength from the idea that no matter what, the Fed has slowed down quite a bit from uh, from last year. And then just in terms of general seasonal pattern stuff, does that start to get less friendly or are we still in decent shape for the market?
5: Uh, It starts to get a a little bit less friendly as we move deeper into the, the second half, you know, Usually there is some sort of summer rally that brings you into a a fall pullback. So, again, that gives us a little bit more time. But the most positive part of the cycle, if you want, let's say, look over a four-year window, presidential election cycles, um, I think it's an old wives' tale that the the pre-election year is the strongest year on average. And that is very true. But a lot of those gains do come in the first half. So seasonals will probably get a little bit tougher as we move deeper into the second half of the year.
1: And um, just in terms of what we're calling this thing, (laughs) you know, there was a lot of debate. We got across 20 percent in terms of upside from the low. And people said, "Okay, that's a bull market. You guys have your own ways of determining these things. And you said you uh, have been overweight equity since January. So presumably you've thought that the trend was higher for for a while now before we even got to that 20 percent.
5: Yeah, so the we we do keep our own uh, definition of a bull and a bear market that's different from the 20% because, you know, for example, uh, November 20th of 2008 to January 6th, 2009, the S&P rallied about 24%. No one calls that a bull market. Mm-hmm. So if you want to do good, robust analysis, you need a better definition. Ours is a combination of time and price. We haven't quite gotten there at this point. Another push higher uh, would get us there, Uh, but you know those those are really good for historical analysis. But if you wait for you know the market to rally twenty percent or more, then you know you miss good gains, which is why you you need to go ahead and, and allocate your portfolio before necessarily you get that. That information that the bull market has already started.
1: Yeah, st- staying in tune with the market and then uh, labeling it later, I guess, is, uh, is maybe makes more sense. Uh, Ed, uh, great to talk to you. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. All right, Ed Klosol from Ned Davis Research. Up next, we're tracking the biggest movers as we head into the close. Christina Partsonevolas is back with that. Hi, Christina.
7: Well, I've got to talk about a new Alzheimer drug that just got full FDA approval, and yet shares of the producer are falling. I'll explain why after this break.
1: 18 minutes till the closing bell. Rally losing a little bit of steam. S&P 500 just about flat right now. Let's get back to Christina Parts of Nevelis for a look at the key stocks to watch. Hey, Christina.
7: Hi. Well, let's talk about shares of office landlord Paramount Group, ticker PGRE, not to be confused with Paramount Global. Those shares are up about 14% after giving an update on former lease agreements. The group, sounds like bad news, expects to take a $20 million loss in profit after a loss of revenue from lease agreements with... First Republic Bank and Silicon Valley Bank. This news literally comes just two weeks after the New York real estate giant said that they were gonna slash its dividend by 55%, but the market wanted numbers, they got numbers, that's why it's up. Let's talk about shares of Biogen. They're uh, about 2%, but now 3% lower after announcing the FDA approved its first Alzheimer drug, which means patients could actually get reimbursed for the cost. But this is the the caveat. Doctors would have to submit patient data before the treatment, as well as every six months to a registry database. So That means more paperwork. Analysts seem to be a little bit split on how fast Biogen can ramp up the drug for production. So maybe that's adding to some of the sell-off that you're seeing, about 3%, but still great news for Alzheimer's.
1: That is for sure. Christina, thanks so much. Last chance to weigh in on our Twitter question. We asked, what would the Fed do at its next meeting? Hike by 25 basis points, presumably cut rates or pause. Head to at CNBC closing bell on Twitter. We will bring you the results after this break. Let's get the results of our Twitter question. We asked, what will the Fed do at its next meeting? Hike rates. Overwhelming winner here. Uh, 72% of you. That's about links up with the odds the market are giving uh, a 25 basis point hike in two and a half weeks. Although 3% saying cut rates. A lot has to happen between now and then for that to happen. All right, Rivian roaring higher. and Alibaba stock is popping. Those stories and more when we take you inside the market zone. We are now in the closing bell market zone. Wells Fargo Securities Chris Harvey is here to break down these crucial moments of the trading day. Plus Phil LeBeau on a huge week for Rivian and what it means for the state of the EV market. And Deirdre Bosa on what's behind the rally in Alibaba shares. Chris, uh, start with you here. We have the uh, major indexes. The big caps are kind of deflating a little bit after this intraday rally, although uh, it is seemingly some healthcare and Microsoft weighing on the S&P. The equal-weighted S&P is showing some relief, up two-thirds of a percent. Small caps are outperforming as well. Now, what's your your takeaway from the jobs number, the implications for where we are in whatever landing we're going for, and and therefore the Fed?
10: Uh, So that's a lot. Let me me see, see if I can take it piece by piece. So yesterday, the ADP number, everyone's like, whoa, okay. And so the probability of the Fed fund hike just skyrocketed. We always thought that the Fed was going to raise 25 basis points, but now I think everyone's convinced it is. Today we get the payroll numbers, it wasn't, it was a bit cooler than people expected, so we ease back a little bit. At the end of the day, it looks like the Fed has two more hikes in there. That's what we're dealing with. Every time the Fed gets a bit more hawkish, it weighs on the market, it weighs on the Uber cap stocks, and the Uber cap stocks are now overbought. And the last thing is, we're heading into earnings season, trying to be a little bit more conservative and look for things that haven't worked, haven't performed just yet, and I think that's what's happening. out of that market because of that. It's
1: interesting, you know, my, my take on what happened with markets and the interplay with the Fed after the SVB yeah. meltdown was, you quickly want us a little more of a patient Fed, it yeah. seemed, yeah. than we would have had otherwise. And then the question was, how bads the economy, you know, have to be as a, as a cost of that? Right. We're here now, four months later, and the economy's held up very well. Yeah. On the other hand, rates are almost back to where they were in early March. And we might get toward 6% on the Fed funds rate. Maybe not, yeah. but toward there. Um, so is that an equation that, that the market can
10: digest? It's trying to digest it, and, and it's confusing. So I've been in the markets for well over two decades, and I'm trying to understand, still understand, why the Fed paused. Mm. All of a sudden, 30 days is going to give them such clarity and insight. I, at the end of the day, yes, there's going to be a lag. But 25 basis points is not going to push us over the cliff. And you want more certainty, you want to do things, you have the economy, you have inflation, not quite on the ropes, but a little bit on the run, push that advantage, right? If you're a boxer or you're an athlete, you know, you, you go for it when the other guy, the opponent's on the ropes, they, they should not have paused, mm-hmm. they didn't, I think that's to their disadvantage. But to your earlier point, yeah, we may be contending with Fed funds over 6% at some point in the next couple months.
1: Yeah. Uh, I think they would say, well, look, it's 42 days between meetings. It's a little more than 30 days, but that's still not maybe uh, a tremendous amount of new information. You mentioned maybe it's time to look for things that haven't participated or or things where there's a little more valuation advantage. What does that mean specifically?
10: What that means is mid-cap and specifically mid-cap growth. Mid-cap growth has done okay this year, but it's underperformed the market. It's a group that still has good valuation. Um, It can perform quite well because it does... Do well in this kind of um, economic malaise. In addition to that, you have stocks that really can have power through with their earnings from an earnings point of view. So that's where we want want to put a lot of emphasis. Otherwise, what we tell people is maybe barbell the portfolio with some pharmaceutical, something defensive, mm-hmm. and, and then you know get your AI exposure through media and entertainment. Um, Valuation still looks good there, and I think that's a smart way to go about it.
1: Not uh, something like financials, which is a little more of a reclamation project at this point?
10: I I think that's a great word, reclamation project. The one thing about financials is generally when they do poorly coming into earnings season, you do see them outperform during earnings season. They have underperformed, so we could see a little bit of a pop. But I think that's a short-term issue, not a longer-term issue. Gotcha. Uh, Let's get over
1: to Phil LeBeau, uh, who's going to uh, tell us all about Rivian, uh, as well as the rest of the uh, the
4: EV market, Phil. Mike, what a week for Rivian shares. Take a look at this stock. Up 50%, 50% compared to last Friday. A number of things helping here. You had commentary, positive commentary, about production increasing and sustainably increasing at uh, Rivian. Also, the first half... EV sales. We've got a report today, analysis from Motor Intelligence. The R1T is the best-selling electric pickup in the United States in the first half of this year. There you see the market share for the first half. Tesla continues to dominate this market. We want to talk about GM, which is number three, and Ford, which is now number five in terms of EV sales here in the U.S. Both of those stocks got price target increases for Morgan Stanley, but not because of the EV business, not because of optimism there, it's because of the traditional business, Mike, and what's happening there in terms of demand and pricing and the benefits to both GM and Ford with their legacy businesses. That's why both shares getting a decent pop today relative to what they have been doing. And look, we, we haven't seen this where we've had a decent month or two for GM and Ford, but that's what we're looking at right now.
1: And Phil, what are we pacing uh, in terms of an annual rate for overall North American sales? I mean, I
4: know GM had some optimistic words about that this week. Yeah. Well, they thought the second quarter would come in at 16 million. Actually, according to Motor Intelligence, it came in at 15.8 million as the pace of sales for the year. Most believe we're on track to come in somewhere in that. 15 to 15.2 million, depending on what we see in the second half. But right now, Mike, we continue to see strong demand, and we continue to see estimates move higher.
1: Yeah, it's been, uh, I think, a a real surprise to the uh, to the consensus that uh, the auto market has remained as uh, robust as it has. Phil, thanks very much. Uh, Deirdre, uh, Alibaba, another mover today. A little bit of relief running through that stock.
0: There's relief because even though it is a billion dollar fine that the Chinese authorities are levying on alibaba it does mean or at least it signifies investors believe that this regulatory pressure is finally behind the company removing one obstacle to an ipo you might remember back in 2020 after some comments that jack ma made very publicly to the chinese regulators themselves they pulled that ipo and it's just been sort of a downward spiral since then ant group was once valued at more than 200 billion dollars most recently valued at around $64 billion, so it has been a really tough slog. Alibaba, of course, owns 33% of Ant, and that is why, you see, with this sort of hurdle removed, that is why Alibaba shares are surging today.
1: And what do we take from this, uh, Dee, about, you know, the the message from this move in terms of policy by the Chinese authorities toward the private sector? Uh, Clearly, that's been one of those factors we've had to evaluate along with every other bit of uh, economic fundamentals.
0: I mean, on one hand, and I think this is generous, there's some relief here in that the regulators will eventually back off. But, I mean, it's bittersweet because relief comes after hundreds of billions of dollars destroyed in value of both Ant Group and Alibaba. You go back two years to the beginning of this, or more a bit more than that, to the beginning of this whole saga with Ant Group, and Alibaba has suffered dearly. Jack Ma, of course, co-founded both of those companies. So anything he's touched or built in China has really been smacked down by the authorities. So maybe some small relief here, but it is really small consolation for how much value has been destroyed since this all began.
1: Yeah, without a doubt. Uh, clearly, uh, people are gun-shy investors and, uh, and business folks alike. D. Thanks very much. Uh, have a great weekend. Um, Chris, as we talk about what the Fed might do if they're in this fine-tuning mode, um, we had Austin Goolsbee there suggest that that, that coveted uh, soft-landing scenario doesn't, uh, doesn't isn't something you have to abandon yet. Do you agree with that?
10: I You don't have to abandon yet. And I don't think the economy is going to slow down until the Fed gets a lot more aggressive. We're not talking one or two, t- two hikes. We're talking three or four. And that's when you really have to worry about, when that terminal rate starts looking or staring at 6%. And and that's when I think that trend, the major trend, will break.
1: So that means it's not really a soft landing. It's just kind of a prolonged
10: process before we have the reckoning. I, I haven't seen too many soft landings. I'm not expecting one now. And at the end of the day, I think the Fed still has a lot of work to do. They didn't break the economy. They didn't break inflation. They didn't break the job market. Stock market's up double digits. I think they have a lot more to do.
1: Yeah. Uh, you would think with all those inputs, they have a lot more to do. Although we'll see what CPI says tomorrow about if inflation really starts to do some of their uh, their work for it. Chris, thanks very much. Thank you. Good to see you. As we head uh, toward the close, you see the S&P 500 now down about one third of one percent on the day, also down more than one percent on the week. However, market breadth has been positive. This is one of those days where the big caps are pressuring the overall indexes, and yet the Russell 2000 up 1.1%, 70% of all volume on the New York Stock Exchange is to the upside at this point, and we actually have the uh, equal-weighted S&P up 40 basis points. Volatility index back down below 15 after running above 16 uh, in the middle of the week.
3: That's going to do it for Closing Bell.
8: Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential.